1: Yes, it is. Well, welcome back. I am Seth Leapson, and it's a delight delight to have back with us uh, Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Slightly different interview. Uh, This is going to be me and Pete talking about one or two other guys. Uh, Pete, I was um, Michael Knowles over at Prager University uh, does the book club, and he sat down with you uh, this week. People can get this at PragerU.com to talk about uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, two-volume work, Democracy in America, and it is right. a feast. It's a total feast. Um, mm. it's, it's fantastic. I have so much to ask you about this. I suppose I'd start this way, just to give a general overview. I was watching some tribute to Henry Regnery, the great publisher, some many, some years ago, and Stan Evans gave the toast, and he said, the secret to publishing, to, to good publishing is the same... Secret to a Good Society, Good Books, um, Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville's two volumes. Um, boy, good, important, uh, still around. Tell us about the import of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. What was done? What was said? What we take from it?
2: Well, I think knowing a bit about the background is, is important. Yes. Uh, this this was a book as you say, written in two sections, of volume one and volume two. uh, But wherever uh, books are sold, you get them together. Uh, But it was essentially a, it began as a travelogue by the Frenchman, the French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville, who came to the United States from France in 1831, ostensibly to write about what this growing republic was like, and also in particular to study the prison and penitentiary systems here in the United States. Uh, What began with that purpose turned into really a magisterial book about American exceptionalism, uh, what makes America unique, not only in the structure of its government, uh, the importance of federalism and subsidiarity, but also in what... Tocqueville would call our mores. What what are the the habits of the heart? Another phrase that he uses that Americans uh, essentially have um, as democratic citizens um, that enables them to handle this previously unknown level of freedom.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a few questions that are just of maybe parochial interest, but, but they are of interest to me because this is a big assignment. Uh, Democracy in America, it's two volumes, is not a short read. It's not a hard read, but it, there's a lot there. How did this come about? How did you and Michael Knowles and Prager you come about to doing this? Was it something you were well well interested in? They assigned it to you? I'm just curious because Michael does a great interview but you, you you, are a great scholar of Tocqueville, clearly. I mean, I learned a lot from you.
2: Well, I appreciate that. It really just began. I, I've known the folks at Prager U for years. They operate just over the hill here in Sherman Oaks, California. Uh, that's where Prager U films and operates out of. Um, so they had reached out to me about the book club just to say, hey, we'd love to have you on. Um, if you have a book you want to recommend, uh, we can start there, or we can recommend one. And of course, uh, Democracy in America, not only being a great book, but it personally was a book that really did change my own life okay. and how I understood America, really in some some profound ways. And so I responded and said, boy, if we could do democracy in America, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. And they said, you know, we've had a lot of people want to do that. And we've been waiting for, for somebody that we might engage on it. And you're the guy. So that's that's how it got going.
1: I often observe, Pete, that once in a while, maybe almost once every century, a great foreigner casts his eye and study to America and explains us to ourselves in a way better than we do ourselves. I think of Lafayette. I think of Alexis de Tocqueville. I think of John Stuart Mill, a little bit in the same century as as Tocqueville. Uh, I think of Chesterton in the 1920s. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And, And Tocqueville certainly, certainly explained America to Americans in a way that we would agree with, but maybe didn't know quite as deeply as he observed. Maybe it takes that foreign eye. That uh, that not skeptical eye, but interested and supportive eye, to explain us to ourselves a little bit better. Sometimes I don't know if you. No, I think
2: that's. I totally agree with that. And again, just to be clear, I mean, Tocqueville is not really writing just this celebratory essay about you know America's all these great and wondrous things. It it is really written from a perspective that. And again, he's writing for a French audience. Right. He wasn't really anticipating that this book would ever be read in yeah. America. Yeah. And writing to a French audience that obviously had been convulsed by one revolution after another, after the initial French Revolution, um, he's saying this democracy is coming to the world, mm-hmm. and these are the things that you need to know about. But what makes the book really so important for Americans today to read is the second half, the second book of the two-book volume in which he gets into a series of what I call Tocqueville's prophecies about things that people living in democratic republics need to worry about yeah. as they look to the future.
1: Yeah, it's a slightly – I don't know what the right word is the – vol- the second volume – my recollection is this is distant to me, Pete, so forgive me if I get it wrong and correct me where I do. The second volume is almost a little bit darker than the first volume, was my memory. Is that, I don't know if that's still fair by your, by your,
2: no, mind. it is. Yeah. Uh, but it was written with a different intent, right? I mean, uh-huh. the, the first volume was really more of a, again, a, a travelogue, but also a bit of political science looking at the American system of governments, the, you know, he had traveled through Washington, D.C. He understood how Congress worked and the federalist system and the importance of uh, subsidiarity and states into towns and the importance of local communities. But he gets much more sociological, if you will, yeah. as he gets into that second volume and, and again, makes a series of predictions, warnings, essentially, yeah. that uh, I think Americans today are, are certainly uh, – I'm encouraged to to read about.
1: Yeah. And much of what we lament uh, today, he warned about as well. I I remember we'll get into any number of these things if you want. But I remember off the top of my head, I mean, I put it in speeches on this topic when I speak on on, on the judiciary. He warned about um, how unfortunate it was that there's nary a political question that arises in America that doesn't become a judicial one. Uh, I'm pretty close to a quote. It's not exactly direct, but that's pretty close to something he wrote in there, isn't it?
2: That's right. No, the the thing that really comes across is just how much Tocqueville marveled at Americans' ability to govern themselves, particularly at the local level. And – you think back at the time in the 1830s, the federal government was not really even a – I mean, it was an entity. But as far as its taxing powers and regulatory powers, it wasn't anywhere close to what it is now. It was really the states no. that were the dominant, no. say, superstructure over mm-hmm. the local governments and certainly the move towards or the looking into the future and seeing – lawyers and the judiciary and others getting more involved in policymaking, removing the representative nature of uh, our democratic republic. were were one of several uh, cautions that that Tocqueville makes.
1: Yeah. And a lot of the stuff you and I have talked about over the last, uh, I don't know, how long have we known each other? A couple of years anyway, maybe. Um, A lot of the stuff we talk about, you know, he addresses as well. Let's start with the one that most people identify with democracy in America, uh, which is gets us even to a passion of yours, and and this is this issue of voluntary associations as kind of yeah. the secret ingredient to what makes yep. us so great. It's a big one, and I see I have to take a quick break. Can we just do it? Can I can I set that up, and I'll be of right course. back on, on the other side yeah. of the commercial break, and we'll do that. We're talking. To Pete Peterson, he is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and uh, you sh- can follow him certainly on Twitter, a very active Twitter feed, at Pete4CA. Uh, if you want to see his interview with Michael Knowles uh, on this at PragerU, you can just obviously go to PragerU.com. This is part of the um, the book club that they do, and it's going to get, if you bear with us, uh, to a great deal of relevance to the uh, the past two weeks in America, too. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Did a great Prager University sit down with Michael Knowles on um, Democracy in America, the two-volume uh, tome by Alexis de Tocqueville from the 19th century, still so relevant today. Pete, um, a lot of people who don't know a lot about democracy in America or a lot about Tocqueville, if they have a faint memory of it, perhaps from a civics course in high school or something like that, they remember this this pregnant phrase, voluntary associations. This was yep. something that uh, de Tocqueville thought was one of the secret sauces to our existence. You want to say a few words about that?
2: Yeah, the... Um, I. I quote this phrase directly from Democracy in America about that in this PragerU video. Um, At one point, Tocqueville is just cannot believe how many voluntary associations are taking over jobs, tasks, and responsibilities that back on the European continent were handled either by uh, governments or other types of officials, and at one point he says, at the start of a great undertaking where you'll find the government official in France, the Lord of the manor in England, count on it in America you'll find an association
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and this willing this associativeness that another word that Tocqueville uses that was required, if we think about it in an America at this time, you know only. 50 years old, Uh, there weren't really major government institutions, even at the local level, to do things like build schools, uh, roads, even bridges. You know, many of the things that even today Americans believe are more government responsibilities. Back at that time, uh, it was groups of Americans working together in kind of this nationwide series of barn raisings, if you will, Mm. uh, that were going on uh, throughout the country. And as Tocqueville would say, this was really because there were no other options. There wasn't a government to lean on Mm. that had the sufficient capacity to undertake these things. But across a variety of uh, social services, if you call that, around poverty and certainly, uh, you know, children that needed to be adopted, um, those kinds of things, it was really left to Americans working through a vibrant nonprofit sector that was responding to these things.
1: And as long as we're now talking about that, that opens the door, too, Pete, to really a set of beautiful things he says about the importance of religion in America, the church in America, right?
2: That's right. You know, he says this other phrase that in America, religion is the foremost yeah. of their political institutions. Yeah,
1: isn't that an interesting and phrase? Yeah, that's the one. It is. Yeah. And of
2: course, what, what Tocqueville means by that is not necessarily that there's some blending of church and state, but that religion in America, as opposed to, again, he's always comparing back to his European experience. What religion in America, as it's practiced, was really formative in preparing people for political leadership uh, certainly through the wide range of protestant churches they were generally led by parishioners so people kind of got a training in that but there was also this aspect of religion particularly christianity that formed citizens that were able to regulate themselves
1: that's right that's right but that's my memory of it is he talks about how it's what tempers or if that's not, if that's too pejorative, that's right. it's it, it it's what makes our 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 our, our delight and our life in freedom work, right? Religion is what makes freedom work without becoming assaultive of others, right?
2: That's right, and I think temper is the right word, okay. right? I mean, we okay. we we know that it, when provided with this unimaginable freedom and opportunity that was present in America, you know, the Europeans would say, "Well, they're just." going to go crazy and care only for themselves and disconnect from all things and just be kind of that devil-take-the-hindmost kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And really, it was religion that helped form these, again, this phrase, habits of the heart for Americans that enabled them to control these very, what could be selfish impulses and turn them much more into... community-focused interest in doing, either working through their church or through, certainly, faith-based nonprofits, Uh, to engage in the needs and respond to the needs of their communities.
1: That's right. So I kind of think of it as, uh, you know, the phrase, almost everyone knows the phrase probably in this audience anyway from John Adams that our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people and is, what, wholly inadequate to anything else or to a government of any other. And that's that issue that I think Tocqueville is seizing on. I don't think he knows that quote or uses it, but that is the sense, isn't it, that you can't have... You can't have freedom – and we'll get to equality in a moment as well because he opens the yep. book there, I think. But you can't have it without a moral basis. That's that's the point. That's absolutely right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Which we should say a word about that equality thing because <laughs> – that equality thing. I sound like Joe Biden. <laughs> sorry. You know the thing, the equality. Sorry. <laughs> but he does open, doesn't he? He opens the book um, – almost obsessing on equality it it it, it yeah. is he i think he says it is the fundamental isn't it the fundamental basis isn't that his phrase or something like that from which everything else in america derives itself something like that i
2: think yeah no there's he he does open the book that way, uh, saying – and I'm going to paraphrase a bit, yeah. but it's pretty close to the quotation – that what strikes the eye of someone when they first arrive in America is the equality of conditions.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's right. It is – That's thank you. Good rem- reminder. Right? And, that's, yes. and so
2: what he's – again, comparing that back to the European experience where in this hierarchical, monarchical system, where you start is where you finish in life.
1: Yes. Yes. And
2: in America, he was witnessing this amazing turbulence, where people who had just come into America uh, the year prior and all all of a, and and come in almost penniless had risen to these amazing heights of either economic power or political power, uh, only to find maybe a year or two later that they've lost this great you know wealth that they've amassed. I mean, it was really it wasn't just a unidirectional. Uh, way in which this equality of conditions was was providing opportunities to America. It was that this was really, again, this this great turbulence, but provided by opportunity that was really up to you to take.
1: That's right. And thank you for reminding me of that phrase. That is the phrase um, now that you remind us of it. So when we talk about, you know, other public policies having to do with uh, affirmative out, outcome, uh, affirmative action type outcomes, this is maybe where that when we say, well, we believe in equality of condition. Maybe this is where we get that phrase without even quite knowing it. You know, maybe this is where that it may be. From. Yeah, no,
2: it's it's worth bringing back up again yeah. for sure. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Let me take a quick break and let's talk about apathy. Can we talk about apathy? That's that's you know, he warns, as uh, as I recall, that apathy is is the greatest threat that would face that would uh, that would harm democracy in America. And it's the kind of thing you and I have talked about on this show a lot as well. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Pete Peterson. And we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is his website. He did a great sit down with uh, Michael Knowles for Prager University on the on the tomes Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, and we're talking about that interview and what it means what de Tocqueville means or can mean for us now, especially in these I don't know, harsh times, uh, difficult times, uh, somewhat fraying times. Pete, uh, one of the quotes I do have, of, uh, I, I kind of keep a quote book. I don't know if you do. I call it a commonplace book. And Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in Democracy in America, one of those is – It cannot be absolutely or generally affirmed that the greatest danger of the present age is license or tyranny, anarchy or despotism. Both are equally to be feared, and the one may be as easily to proceed as the other from the selfsame cause, namely apathy. Apathy, which is the consequence of what? i term individualism you know the idea that we are not involved the idea that we do take this stuff for granted the idea that ronald reagan was concerned about right the idea that all these um all these george orwell uh intonations you know worry this is how societies lose themselves they forget they forget what they're about right that's so
2: true of course if if Tocqueville is going to describe the reason by which Americans are able to maintain limited government which is significant massive nationwide civic engagement then apathy is the is the cancer that eats away at that right right mm-hmm. and so i i mentioned the phrase that Dennis Prager always uses you know the bigger the government the smaller the citizen yep. and the yep. Smaller the citizen, the bigger the government, yeah. and that is essentially democracy in America in a single phrase.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, because again, he Tocqueville is just overwhelmed by the fact that Americans are essentially taking care of their own business, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not doing it individually; they're doing it within communities, and it's a, a concept very famous in the book. Uh, known as self-interest rightly understood. And in that section of the book, Tocqueville writes that so many of us in Europe hearing about the freedoms that are afforded to Americans just thought that everybody would become selfish. Mm -hmm. But as he looks and sees both their religious devotion – their civic participation, he said, Americans have combated this selfishness that we thought would be natural in a place of such great freedom with what he calls self-interest rightly understood. They've, They've learned how to practice their freedoms in such a way that still maintain our freedom, but at the same time understand that we need to be working with others in community as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so I guess when we look at, how, I don't know how do, how do you describe the times we're in? Difficult is too general, but we're we're divided. Maybe divided's the right word. Yeah, yeah divided that,
2: and uncertain.
1: Yeah, I think uncertain too. Yeah. and divided. Is Tocqueville the medicine? Is Tocqueville the right I, medicine? Is democracy? I in believe America? he is yeah. because
2: again at the at toward the end of the book. He talks about these this prophecy that he sees that, uh, that Americans need to be cautious about, which is if this apathy kicks in at such a level that you've withdrawn from your participation in association with others, then you will generally then... Tend to look for government just to protect your own stuff <laughs>
1: yeah. as
2: opposed to again assuming responsibilities that will keep government limited yeah and so he he forecasts this what he calls immense tutelary state oh. that oversees everybody's needs mm-hmm. as opposed to standing back getting out of the way and promoting a flourishing civil society but he sees that that's really in our hands uh,
1: to do, Yes, that's right. No, we're empowered with that. And he talks about the many freedoms, doesn't he, throughout the, the tome? Is it tome or tomes? I don't know. It's two volumes. Is it one? Is yeah. It, is it one work? I don't know. But in his Democracy in America, let's try yes. it that way. Uh, he talks about a lot of the things that are needed for all of that. You can't really silo the various aspects he observes, the various aspects of our civil society, and still have America. You need the church. Yeah. You need the freedom of association. You need the freedom of religion. You need the freedom of speech. Um, he goes That's into right. that a little bit. There's our music. Can I keep you one more segment? For sure. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Let me pick up on freedom of speech a little bit with de Tocqueville as well. Pete Peterson is our guest dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're looking to go into uh, graduate work uh, to help fix this place, we call America. This is the best school in the country to do it. And uh, Pete is the best dean in the best school in the country. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He did a great sit down with Michael Knowles at Prager University discussing Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, what it can mean for us today. You can get that at PragerU. Pete, I feel a little guilty on this interview because you you were given a reading assignment by by PragerU and Michael Knowles, and now I'm putting you through the drills again. I, I hope it's a labor of love. <laughs> I don't mean to <laughs> I don't mean to exhaust you and make you regret that you undertook restudying all this. Not at all. Not at all. Um. There's you know, a lot that ails our country right now. And as you and I, I think both agree, there's a lot in Tocqueville that would help us bind and heal those wounds, maybe even prevent them in the first place. Those yeah. freedoms, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of speech he, if i if I remember correctly, he goes into those as perhaps the greatest bulwarks against. Another phrase that we can help attribute to him, maybe Madison and him more than anything else, which is tyranny of the majority, right? These are the bulwarks to protect us from the tyranny of the majority. Yes, a democracy governs by majorities, but majorities can be tyrannous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, that's right. And of course, this is one of the areas as we begin to talk about the importance of, of free speech that... At once, Tocqueville gets absolutely right, but I think he also, uh, in ways that he couldn't have foreseen, misses a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Tocqueville is very upfront about the fact that public opinion in a democracy is a powerful uh, instrument for controlling broader public opinion on a variety of policy, political, or cultural issues. And he sees this through the lens of the broader democratic uh, instincts of Americans, which is to trust a majority of opinion on things. So he talks a lot about the fact that Americans will hold up the majority view on an issue, whether it's a uh, an election or an issue, as being almost the voice of God mm-hmm. that they just necessarily trust. That mm-hmm. I th- I think I think what he misses is that there can be a tyranny of the minority as it pertains to public opinion, Yeah, which is something that certainly that we're seeing now. So in one sense, Tocqueville gets absolutely right the power of public opinion, that it, uh, he, at one point he says that nothing, once it's set in the American mind, a position on a particular issue, nothing stands in, in its way.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: But what he doesn't, I don't think get, and again, allowable given all the other things he, he does get this was right. still
1: early america let us not forget right this is that's what, right 40 year old america or something like that
2: that's it that's it um is the fact that um here what we're i believe we're seeing today on a whole host of issues and this certainly gets to uh the topic of cancel culture mm-hmm. is that public opinion can be set by a minority in such a way that people believe it's a majority yeah but yeah. it nonetheless controls Public opinion and what's permissible to say across a whole host of issues.
1: You know, I can imagine many first being exposed to the topic of democracy in America. The title of of, of his work, "Democracy in America," I, I suppose I could I could assume many people would say, "Well, you know, really, we're a republic." That's that's right. not what he's going at. No. Um, he discusses right. that. Uh, yeah. He gets into that. He acknowledges we are a Republican form of government, he even highlights it. And I think one of the appendices from our Constitution, but one of the appendices in the Constitu- uh, from our Constitution. But democracy is kind of the means, isn't it? It's the means of ma- that, is yeah. that. That's how that's how I've always thought of it. That's how I always thought he kind of thought of it. We have democratic processes to not only establish but maintain the Republican form of government. Do I have that about right?
2: Abs I couldn't have put it better myself. I think that's that's exactly right. He certainly does understand that we are a republic, right. and certainly throughout the first book itself, he's describing in uh, every you know right down to the, the smallest detail how American government works and the importance of representation and the importance of again federalism and subsidiarity. He understands all of that, but at the same time. The view and the understanding of democracy is is both a broader understanding of public involvement in policymaking, but also a cultural statement. that yeah. There are these more ways of understanding how we relate to one another when we have these uh, immense freedoms available to us.
1: I guess I really only have one other question, Pete, Um which is... Who does a better interview of you on this book, me or Michael Knowles? <laughs> <laughs> One of us is going to get fired <laughs> if you answer the right way or the wrong well, way. Well, let me yeah.
2: say I always enjoy <laughs> being
1: with you. Always I have to tell you, all seriousness, uh, in all seriousness, your discussion with Michael Knowles on PragerU. First of all, I want to get to know Michael Knowles better. I have never seen him do an inter- this, this He must have read everything in the world. I mean, he, he yeah. is such yeah. a well-read guy. A. B. If you folks want to understand a little bit uh, classically what we're going through today, and as I say, you know, the, the bandages that might heal and bind up our wounds, or maybe even the touchstones to go back to to help explain why we think what we think, it is this book, Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. Pete, is it your sense that it's still taught very much?
2: You know, I don't think it is. I don't either. It, you know, it is a core text at the policy school, and I would bet would be. we're the only <laughs> graduate policy program. I mean, every if you graduate from here, every student has to have read and studied deeply Good. the book. Good. We just continue to see it as being so important. Again, not as a history text, no. but no. taking seriously the arguments that he makes about how exceptional America is and what it's going to take to stay that way.
1: Yeah, it's not a, It's not quite history and it's not quite philosophy. Right. It's really its own thing. Isn't that yeah. kind of interesting? I've, it's hard to categorize it. Um,
2: it is. It, it yeah,
1: is. it's a journal for certain, but it's, it's, it's long. I don't want people to be dissuaded if they're interested in it, but it's very easily understandable, especially with uh, – we like the Mansfield translation, I think, don't we? Hardly Absolutely. That's the one we That's like. Right. I think you That's actually right. mentioned it. Well, Pete, you're such a good man to do this again um, and well, to uh, be with our audience again on your Fridays. We appreciate you so much.
2: Great to be with you, Seth.
1: Thank you. Have a great weekend. I'm Seth Liebson, and I'll be back with a final thought. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, uh, portions of which are brought to you by our good friends at Y refi. if you're concerned with stock market volatility, why refi is offer, uh, offering an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like and no surprises. Your interest rate is compounded daily you're paid monthly and there are no fees. you can turn your monthly income on or off compound it whatever you choose and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that offers a high fixed interest rate up to ten point two five percent. That's right. Up to ten and a quarter percent return. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888 Y ReFi34. 888 Y ReFi34 Great guys doing well by doing good. You can be a part of that, too. In closing out this uh, this, this conversation with Pete and this week, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about how I opened my conversation with Pete, um, especially in such highly charged political times as we are in right now. Um, Stan Evans, uh, I quoted saying, you know, he was toasting Henry Regnery. It was a great conservative publisher. Published Bill Buckley's first book, uh, God and Man at Yale, and a lot of other stuff as well. Great stuff. And Stanton said, "What what makes for a good publishing house is the same thing that makes for a great country: good books, great books." And um, and I worry about you know I worry about us leaving that behind and you know flooding and rushing and being wigged out by the storm of frenzy, social media and. Uh, New shiny things and the next existential crisis, which is followed only a week after the one before that, which was only five days before that. Leo Strauss writes, the reading of the morning prayer has been replaced by the reading of the morning paper. This was in the 50s. Not every day the same thing, the same reminder of man's absolute duty and exalted destiny, but every day something new with no reminder of duty and exalted destiny specialization, knowing more and more about less and less, the practical impossibility of concentration upon the very few essential things upon which man's wholeness entirely depends, the specialization compensated by sham universality, by the stimulation of all kinds of interests and curiosities without true passion, the danger of universal philistinism and creeping conformism. Get a good book. Get a classic. Delight in that. Do it over the weekend if you want. I guarantee you, you will be a richer man and woman come Monday. You really will. And you'll be so much the wiser than any of that time you would have spent on social media or engaged in the frenzy they want you in. Calm, reflective, the absence of Philistinism is found in the great books and the great audience, which I love so dearly. Thank you all.